Well, this is uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Year. I am Jim Grant, and welcome. Um, and with me, as always today, uh, Eric Whitehead to my left of the dials, Phil Grant, the editor of Almost Daily Grants, the uh, not almost, but perfectly indispensable daily update on the financial markets, and uh, the great Evan Lorenz, deputy editor of Grants. We're all here. Yeah. And uh, we are brought to you today by Health IQ. And uh, that's for the hard bodies who are listening. And uh, also, you um, are listening to us courtesy of ourselves. We are sponsored by Grants itself at a very reasonable rate, too, I might say. We are sponsored, in fact, specifically by the Grants Spring Conference, April 10th at the Plaza Hotel. We'll see you there. So, um, you know, um, Evan, I cannot forbear but talk a little bit about the issue. This went to press on Tuesday night. It got uh, sent out over the digital wires yesterday. And ordinarily, we... uh, you know, we kind of keep these things under our hat because the paying customers deserve to get first crack. And but sometimes you just have to blab. If something is so exciting, you you can't hold back. You must talk about it. So let us talk about uh, the extraordinary thing that is the People's Republic of Debt or China. <laughs> One and the same. Okay, please, Evan, favor us with some, uh, as it were, vital signs from the People's Republic. So the, the numbers from China are always fantastic, but now they're especially so. Banking assets in uh, in China now foot to $40 trillion. And just to put that in perspective, that's 51% of world GDP. And to give you a sense of scale, China's GDP last year uh, footed to uh, $13 trillion. Um, U.S. GDP last year was $19.4 trillion. U.S. banking assets are only $17.4 trillion. And if you go back in the historical record about as far back as we have, it, which kind of goes back to 1980. U.S. banking assets as a percent of world output peaked at 32% in 1985, right around the time of the Plaza Accords when the dollar soared to uh, to unusually high heights. Right. And um, for Japan, um, its banking system peaked at 27% of world output in 1994. So right now, China's banking systems almost double what the, the U.S. was and Japan was at their respective peaks. It's just phenomenal. There's no precedent for this. If a bank were expanding its balance sheet by, uh, say, 16.5% a year, which is a problem approximately how fast the Chinese banks collectively expanded in 2016, right? You, you'd expect a bank that were growing that fast to be on the, the verge of some very ugly credit event because there's no way that that rate of loan growth is sustained could not result in a lot of, uh, of very bad debts. And banks inherently are vulnerable because they are uh, innately leveraged, right? Yeah, especially if you're coming off of year eight of double-digit banking asset growth, which 2016 was. Yeah, some years ago, one of our friends said that uh, debt is twice as big as GDP in China. Now it's, it's growing twice as fast. That's like more true, right? That can be truer than true, but isn't it like seriously true now as opposed to just true? Yeah, if you, if you just add up the banking assets, like I said, 40 trillion and compare it to Chinese GDP, 13 trillion, it's banking assets are like three times GDP right now. Well, it is, uh, it is a phenomenon. I saw something else today that struck me as... Um, very much a sign of the times, not a very happy sign of the times. And as the Bank of Japan has resumed buying corporate bonds, this is courtesy of Bloomberg, resumed buying corporate bonds at yields below zero, quote, is adding pressure on investors to take on more risk to maintain returns. So the BOJ bought uh, some bonds in February to yield a minus 0.049, so kind of uh, minus five uh, basis points. Uh, the first negative rate purchase in 11 months. So uh, such purchases, I'm, again, I'm reading, are set to continue for some time, eventually driving down yields in the broader bond market, according to SMB Nico Securities Inc. But through the instrumentality of arbitrage, this uh, kind of the gambit is not just isolated in Japan, right? It, uh, it reverberates across oceans. 
yeah, national ban. We've seen U.S. companies go off and issue in Europe in, uh, in very large numbers in the last two years because it's cheaper to issue in Europe than it is in the U.S. When is um, when is the world bond market going to get a decent burial? I mean, it's like dead and decomposing. And certainly the price discovery aspect of this most critical market, I say most critical market, is uh, kaput, no? Well, it, it would kind of fit another theme that um, the BIS has been talking about, which is the rise of zombie companies. So if we have a zombie bond market funding zombie companies, it would kind of seem... And C-squared. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, there is an anthropologist at uh, San Francisco State University who wrote to the editor of the Financial Times the other day and said, uh, uh, apropos of some reporting the FT had done on zombie companies, and this anthropologist... Uh, said that, um, yes, some zombie companies are uh, aging and uh, have been rendered obsolete through the disruption of more energetic and uh, contemporary uh, companies. But let us not forget the contemporary companies that are funded solely through the infusion of venture capital and other uh, stop gaps in the absence of, uh, of profitability. And uh, the professor of anthropology mentioned Uber, one of our picks not to click here at Grants. That is a great point. It is. Um, MIT recently came out with a study saying it's not only Uber that's not profitable, but the drivers aren't especially profitable. They make something like $4 and change after you consider all the costs. There was another story out today saying Uber drivers are even resorting to selling food and snacks in their cars in order to make a little more income. Yeah, but see, that's that's self-defeating because um, if you sell snacks, you get crumbs. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So that, there's your the uh, wear and tear cost. You got to go. You got to go to the. Right, the I got to buy a vacuum car cleaner. wash. Yeah, yeah. I already appreciation. Um, oh, health IQ. We must say a good word about Health IQ. Health IQ is uh, it's for the people who listen to this podcast. It's an insurance company that helps insurance uh, helps uh, health conscious people like you, like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, and vegetarians and I guess vegans, uh, to get lower rates on their life insurance. So go to healthiq.com slash grant and, you know, support this show. And yes, and also see if you qualify. Uh, so, you know, they, they use science, does, uh, do the people at Health IQ, to, and data too, yes, big data, I suppose, to secure lower rates for life insurance for health-conscious people. Now, I, am a, I'm, I happen to be a health-conscious person myself, but it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm meant to read that um, uh, the people who do work out and run and are physically active have a, a 56% lower risk of heart disease, a 20% lower risk of cancer, and a 58% lower risk of diabetes can, compared to people who are inactive. Yeah, okay, maybe that's true, but I got to tell you, at the age of what I, uh, what, how old am I, say, 100, no, 71 and a half that I have begun thinking of myself as a guy who is feeling great because he's between injuries. This might all be true with respect to cancer and heart disease, but I tell you what, as far as stubbed toes go and strained muscles, boy, if you're working out... Yeah, you might want to just you know, yeah, sort of take it easy. Yeah, you might want to do that. So anyway, thank you, Health IQ. So see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com slash grant, or mention the promo code grant. That's... G-R-A-N-T, uh, when you talk to a Health IQ agent. So thanks, Health IQ. So uh, Philip Grant, uh, the editor of Almost Daily Grant, has got something to say about Mario Draghi. And I want you to say it with as little passion, as much objective detachment as is possible. I am ready for that. I took notice this morning of uh, the Financial Times quoting the uh, ECB uh, president. He is none too pleased with the tariff announcements made out of the White House recently. And um, he made his opinions known in, in this morning's press conference, or noting among 
among other things, that uh, he, this is uh, the FT quoting Draghi, that uh, disputes should be discussed and resolved in a multilateral framework. Decisions made in a unilateral framework are dangerous. And I thought that quote uh, was um, was particularly sort of telling uh, in light of uh, some some data that, that we also saw today, courtesy of um, Torsten Slock at Deutsche Bank. He, he produced a lovely chart detailing the, uh, the, the difference between um, ECB uh, asset purchases, uh, QE, quantitative easing asset purchases, and net uh, corporate is- issuance. And, um, and the, the, the team at Deutsche Bank finds that, um, that ECB bond purchases have eclipsed corporate bond issuance by sevenfold, meaning that for every bond that is issued, the ECB is, is buying seven times that. And I wonder if, um, if Mr. Draghi is, if, if he's aware or, or interested in, in the fact that such a radical policy um, necessarily carries uh, significant reverberations far beyond uh, his own borders. Yeah, it seems kind of a unilateral thing to do. In That's, it, right. It? That's right. That's right. Well, this helps to explain why Telecom Italia, or Italia Telecom, excuse me, is uh, is got a security with a five and a quarter to 22, I think, yielding uh, 80 basis points. That's, uh, that's a speculative grade security, by the way. I, I can imagine if the ECB included a couple of life insurers on its uh, policy board, they'd have different opinions about uh, purchasing bonds and driving down yields to nothing. Yes, they would. Or maybe a couple of savers, maybe a couple of savers from Germany. How would that be? I guess they've got a couple. No, Evan, I've been, and Phil, I've been talking, and and Eric, I have been thinking about uh, a new concept. And the new concept is the stranded bond. Now, uh, this is provoked by a news item today. Uh, Somebody is projecting that uh, if the uh, Paris Climate Accord takes its intended intended direction, and um, if fossil fuels are marginalized through renewables, in that case, there will be upwards of $1.6 trillion worth of oil, gas, and coal projects that will become uneconomic. Okay, $1.6 trillion. Okay, that's stranded energy. How about stranded bonds? How many trillions of dollars worth of ultra-low-yielding securities has the world seen in the past five or ten years? Well, a lot, right? Enormous amounts. At the lows in yield and the heights of... Uh, of desperation for bonds in the summer of 2016. What do we say? There's 11 trillion of negative yielding sovereign debt in the world. Yeah, then. and the U.S. 10-year hit 1.36% that summer. Yeah. Well, what happens in a bond bear market, of course, is that yields go up and prices go down, and some of these securities um, are kind of stranded, right? They, they are unwanted at the issue price. They are marked lower, and uh, altogether they seem an undesirable class of asset. This certainly was the case in the bond bear market of 1946 to 81. So I'm thinking, Evan, I'm thinking that uh, we ought to get to work on the stranded bond crisis, which to be sure has not quite yet hit. Although, I don't know, it's, maybe it's getting there. Oh, yes, I forgot to mention, I forgot to mention our second sponsor, a most esteemed sponsor it is. This is the uh, Grand Spring Conference, and nobody's allowed to put his or her podcast on chipmunk speed now. If anything, you should slow it down. Slow in fact, it down, to yes, really right. hear every soul. Okay. So the conference is April 10th at the Plaza Hotel, and I am going to read the list of speakers and uh, what I understand to be their title and the sense of their talk. And you got to listen. You'll be glad to know it because you'll be uh, happy to be there. David Rosenberg, prepare Hearing from Mr. Bear, Boaz Weinstein, who uh, relieved the London whale of uh, many hundreds of millions of dollars back in the day. Bargains in closed-end funds and non-bargains in credit. And uh, John Hamburger, who runs investment service and a publication having to do with the restaurant business, he's going to talk about the threats to the financially over-engineered restaurant business. Now, this sounds like a kind of an inside restaurant thing, right? Like in the kitchen? No. 
this is of general interest because the uh, restaurant business is not the only over-engineered such line of work in, the, in this country. And Howard Marks and I are going to have a talk about the, uh, I guess, the entire world. Howard certainly knows all about it. And we come to Brian Beach of Stansberry Research. He's going to be talk you're talking about using the bond market to pick stocks. Uh, Dean Cornut, a very thoughtful analyst of volatility risk and other sorts of risk. How to hedge in the age of Trump. Yeah, the age of Trump. Evan, it was about a year ago that uh, from this very publication came the phrase, Donald Trump is the avatar of tail risk, where that what followed that was a 12 months of almost preternatural serenity in the financial markets. I kind of wish I'd never said it, but maybe we're, uh, know, maybe we're getting there again. Uh, John Hathaway, the uh, esteemed manager of gold stocks and not having much fun with it recently, but he's like, what's wrong and what's right with gold investments? And then we come to the, um, the finale. Uh, which has comes in two parts. Uh, Kai Stinchcomb, very thoughtful young man, is not taking the standard millennials view of the blockchain. His talk is dealing with 10 years in, nobody has yet come up with a use for it. That is the blockchain. And finally, I am going to be interviewing Michael Novogratz, who's the, um, the money-making alumnus of Fortress Investment Group, who um, is of the opposite point of view on the blockchain. And in fact, he has designs on founding the Goldman Sachs of the blockchain of uh, cryptocurrencies, the kind of merchant bank of the new age of digital money. That's kind of cool, right? Evan, you going to come? I, I think I'll make it. Eric? He's coming. He's not, Eric never says anything, but you can tell by the look in his eyes when he agrees with you. So he's... He's, he's a strong, silent type. Yeah. You going to come, Phil? Uh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. I'm going to be there too. Yeah, good. So um, I, don't know, I, I, I think that... Uh, oh, yes. I wanted to get one last lick in on the People's Republic of China, which is my least country, favorite country today. You know, I, I, I go through phases. I Sometimes I'm mad at Mexico or someplace, or some poor Micronesia. But today, and indeed all this week, it's China. Did you see did you see, did you see the story on Monday, the Wall Street Journal, about Roy Jones, not the really, really good middleweight boxer of yesteryear, but Roy Jones, the 49-year-old social media editor at, at, at Marriott International. By the way, who knew that Marriott would have a social networks editor, but uh, Roy Jones was it. He made $14 an hour, 14 And what Roy Jones did was to uh, like get around to that in a second. He liked a post on Twitter from a Tibetan separatist group, and the group applauded Marriott for listing Tibet as a country rather than as a part of China in an online survey. Uh, so Mr. Jones, uh, his job is to, you know, like, 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 don't like, 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 right? That's what he does for a living. Well, somebody's got to do it. He did it. So he hit like, and, um, and they fired him. So I don't know. I, first of all, I'm inflamed from a point of view of, uh, of fair dealing and, and, uh, and uh, HR justice. Justice, why should there be a firing offense? I don't know. For all I know, Tibet is a own country. I've not made a study of it, but I'm prepared to believe what uh, I'm prepared to believe. The, the last person I heard talk about Tibet is <laughs> the truth of it. But they fired this guy, um, and he has a, has a, a poignant quote at the end saying, "Gee, my job was all I had." So what this tells me, Evan, is that, um, that that China is the place one must be as a multinational. If you're a multinational company, it's this. The, they're going to have what 550 million middle class consumers according to well, one of these uh, one of these consulting outfits in like five years. So they may have that, right? They may have 550 million. They may have 100 million. They may have no million if the Chinese debt bomb blows up. And um, they may or may not have it now too. I mean, when people go back to remeasure GDP like they did in some provinces a, a couple months ago, GDP for some of the provinces were restated down like 30 or 40%. That's the kind of thing that's going to get you fired from Marriott. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, I, th I thank Health IQ. I thank Grant's interest rate observer actually for sponsoring, partially sponsoring this damn generous of them, I say. And, they have uh, great taste, clearly. 
clearly. Yeah, Phil, thank you for being here. Eric, um, don't say a word, Eric, but um, just keep uh, turning those dials. And, and Evan, lovely to see you. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Until next time. Oh, next time is not merely some next time. Next week, we have Ed Yardeni, who, I don't know, we came up together in the financial ranks, um, Ed and I did uh, about um, 100 years ago. But Ed has been a very, very thoughtful and, ex- of course, extremely successful analyst of uh, stocks and bonds and other things by taking a view of the world that is almost, <laughs> that is relentlessly cheerful. And he's been relentlessly correct. So he's written a new book on his life in the business. We won't be talking to him next week. So until then, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being with us. This is Jim Grant for Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. Mm-hmm.